So I don't know what your holiday looked like with family or, or whatever you did. Um, I know <clears throat> when this year we went to my mom and dad's and, you know, it's our little Loami group and then my brother who lives in Fairfield, my sister who lives in Evansville, Indiana, they all come over to my parents and we, you know, eat and have all the fun and play games and do all that. And uh, years ago, when we would have, you know, go to my sister or go to my parents, um, we'd usually get there first. My sister's working and stuff, you know, and they'd come kind of at the tail end of things. And um, when my sister's family came over, it was like a tornado descended upon the house. Um, it was just an instantaneous whirlwind of chaos. The volume increased. Uh, bags, purses, shoes, toys, everything just kind of scattered as they wound their way in. And I remember telling Abby that, man, my sister's family, they're just so chaotic, implying that we weren't, um, you know, that we didn't just inflict chaos everywhere we went. Um, but then we had kids. And, you know, even with one, you know, one baby, you walk in there and you got more stuff you're carrying, right? And the baby cries a little bit here and there, but, but it's not like total chaos. But then you get two. And you're carrying baby stuff, and then there's toddler stuff, and the toddler's doing their own thing and getting everything and breaking stuff the second they walk in the door. And then we had three, and so all of a sudden, we had all the kids, we had all the stuff, all the bags, shoes, purses, toys getting scattered the second we came in the house. And then we were the chaotic tornado that entered in on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, you know, all those years, I thought it was my sister's family, but it was just because that was when she had her little kids. And it's just funny how that has shaped and changed. And now every holiday, the Loami blisses come in and descend with, on my poor, unsuspecting parents with chaos and destruction, you know, like a tornado out of nowhere. And my parents, you know, every time, the week beforehand, anytime we talk to them, oh, we're cleaning, we're getting ready for everybody, we're doing all the work. And it's like the second we show up, it's useless. Like everything's ruined. Everything they did is all just destroyed. Our presence brings chaos. And... Um, which is, is crazy um, when you're the one bringing chaos. Because when it's somebody else bringing the chaos, you get annoyed by it. You're like, oh, gosh, they're here with all of their noise and everything. But when it's you, oh, boy, it's funny how, you know, you start, you know, making excuses for yourself. Um, and it's funny because Abby's sister, her younger sister who lives in Springfield, um, there's, she, and she's the only family member who, uh, on Abby's side who lives, like, in town. And so she's over at our house a lot. And for years, it was just her. She'd come over. And you could tell she thought our house was a little bit annoying. You could tell she thought it was a little too loud. The TV's too loud. Kids make scream too much, all of that. Um, but now, she has a three-year-old, and she just had twin boys about six months ago. And so it's been real fun watching that flip switch, where it's like, now you are the chaos family now. Like, we passed the torch to you. Like, enjoy. Okay, and so it's really funny when you get to watch it happen in real time to somebody else. Um, but it, that's how it is. Like, sometimes you just get into a situation where your very presence, like, just unloads chaos on everyone around you, and it changes the entire environment. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today as we are kind of in the back half of this teaching series on the five offerings of Leviticus. And there are five offerings that the ancient Israelites were commanded by God, taught by God to bring, um, and each one had its own distinct purpose. Um, but to understand any of them, you have to understand this foundational truth that we've mentioned every single week of this series, and it's that God wants to be with you. 
God wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. The story of the Bible is that in the beginning, God created the earth as a place where he could be with humanity, live with them, walk with them, talk with them, be in a day-to-day relationship with them. That's what the Garden of Eden represented. And it's a place where God was with Adam and Eve, but they chose disobedience rather than a relationship with God, and God exiled them, kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, and out of his presence. And the entire rest of the story of the Bible is God trying to repair uh, the relationship, trying to redeem and purify humanity so that he can be with them again. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. And the early stages of God's plan involved him choosing a nation of people, the nation of Israel, to be kind of his representatives in the world, the special people that he would create a situation where he could draw near to them. They would be his people, and he would be their God. And to kind of execute this plan, he instructed them to build a very specific tent. And you're like... Okay, sounds very strange, a little like, okay, what's the big deal about a tent? Um, But the tent was full of imagery of Eden. It was full of garden imagery. It had all of this, like, plants and life um, kind of built into the design of it, woven into its fabrics, so that these people would understand, this is the way back to God. This is where God and humans can once again meet. In fact, it was also called the tent of meeting um, or the tabernacle. And so this tabernacle was a very special Eden-type space, and it was to allow the people to once again come and be with God and for him to be with them. And the way that they would come to be with him was they would bring these certain offerings. And we've looked at several as we've gone. Week one, we looked at the burn offering. Week two, we looked at the grain offering. Last week, we looked at the peace offering. And today we're going to look at the purification offering. Now chances are, if you opened your Bible to Leviticus chapter 4, it would say it was the sin offering. Um, Both titles are good. Sin offering, purification offering. It was a sin offering because it was made because there was sin, and it was a purification offering because the point was to purify sin. So two different names basically for the same thing. Depends which translation of the Bible you have. Um, And so this is the one we're looking at today, is the the purification offering. And it starts in Leviticus chapter 4. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them. And we're going to kind of pause there because this is such a it's such an interesting offering, and I'll get into that. So we're not going to read all of it because we would be here for hours if we wanted to explain it all. But I'll do my best to cover the, the parts that we really need to hone in on. Um, but this, is, this offering was the offering you brought when you know, like, I did something wrong. I've sinned against God, either by doing something you shouldn't or by not doing something that you should have done. And one of the biggest things we're going to learn about um, sin from this offering is that sin just defiles everything. That sin is kind of this corrupting, polluting thing in God's world. And it doesn't just pollute the people who commit it, but it can even mess up the very space in which we live. And Uh, this was a huge problem for the Israelites because they had this tabernacle, this place that was supposed to be where they could come to meet with God, this new clean Eden space that was kind of like a a refresh so that they could come back into God's space. And so the 
if their sin made not just them dirty, but the space they lived in dirty, it made them unworthy of God's presence. It meant that God could not come down from the heavenly places. And, and that their sin defiled not just them, but the very land on which they lived and the very tent at which they came to meet with God. And so for most of us, I don't know, this is a, a completely new way of looking at sin. Like, we're very familiar with the idea that sin messes with me. But the idea that sin, like, somehow drips off of me and, like, the ground on which I stand gets sinful because my sinful self is walking around on it. Um, the, the idea that this spiritual dirtiness is somehow contagious, that feels very weird. Like, we're used to saying, like, oh, I feel guilt and I feel shame when I sin. And we think it's kind of, like, contained to us. In fact, some people will even say, if they do something, after they do something wrong, they'll say, I just feel dirty. Like, I've heard people actually say, I feel dirty. Like, they, there's, like, this emotional reaction to them sinning that they kind of, like, are tipped off to what sin has done to them. But almost nobody talks about the fact that sin spreads beyond the boundaries of our bodies. And uh, we, again, we think of sin as this very isolated thing between us and God and maybe us and the people we hurt. But what if it spreads more than that? Uh, I think a really good way to think about how sin works anymore um, is to think about a dog that goes out and, like, has the time of their life in a big mud hole. Um, you know, they're rolling around. There's few things where you will see more joy in one location than a dog just rolling in mud. It's hilarious to watch a dog. I mean, not a thought in their brain. Their little brain just having the time of their life rolling in it, barking at it, snapping at it, getting up. I mean, they're just loving everything about it. And they get up and they have completely covered themselves. They're filthy, not a clean spot on them. And it's like, that's fine, right? But then they get up to walk away. And they are leaving footprints everywhere they step. It's dripping off of them. Everywhere they go, the filth begins to track with them. And heaven forbid they run up and, and jump on you. I mean, I remember like in high school um, when I was like, you know, I in high school got really like particular about trying to always look good for the ladies and stuff. And so anytime I'd go to like a friend's house and they had a dog jump up on me with like muddy footprints, it was like, no, you've ruined my eligibility for the women. And I'd be so mad at this dog. And I'm like, get out of our stupid dog, you know. But that's what they, they come up and they get prints on, you know, from their muddy, dirty feet. And then heaven forbid they do the shakedown near you because... Like, those little drops of gross come off of them at, like, 400 miles an hour, and they're on the ceiling. Or if you've ever, like, been out with your dog, and you, like, got out just to, like, let them go to the bathroom, and they got dirty, and then you left the car door open, and they just run and hop right back in. I mean, just sell the thing. It Get a new car. It's not worth it. Um, because the, they, they, have just, they just track their nastiness everywhere they go. And the thing about it is, they're, again, having the time of their lives doing it, having so much fun, oblivious to the mess that they are just taking through life with them. And that's kind of, I think, a great picture of how sin works for us. Often when we are doing something we shouldn't do, it's because we're chasing happiness. We're doing something that we think is fun or enjoyable, but we do not understand the consequences of our actions. We do not see the mess, the stains that go with us and the stains that must be cleaned up. And the thing about a dog is they don't go home and take a shower. They don't go home and get like some body wash and a loofah and scrub it all. You have to do that. They don't come out and say, all right, 
I'll be back in a little bit. I made a mess of that car. I got to get it cleaned up. No, that's your carpet to scrub. Those are your seats to wipe down, right? And likewise, when we make such a mess of ourselves and a mess of our world with sin, we are pretty hopeless and helpless to clean it up. And this is kind of the picture that we get all the way through the Bible, but especially in these offerings of the Old Testament. We have our fun with sin, and we think that, you know, if we got away with it and nobody found out, or if we think we didn't, quote, hurt anybody else, we think it's fine. But from God's perspective, we're filthy, we're defiled, head to toe, we're unworthy of being in his presence, and we are ignorantly spreading our mess and our hurt to other people as we go through life. Sin pollutes, not just you, but the very creation that God made us to live in. And so the idea of the purification offering is to deal with this mess that we make. It's to clean, cleanse us and the very space in which we inhabit so that we can come to God. And we see through this that um, one aspect of uh, the purification offering that I would love to be able to have time to explain, and I had it in there until this morning, and um, the thing I write my sermons in tells me how long it's going to be, and I saw that number of minutes, and I was like, that ain't going to be okay for a lot of people, so I just like had to scrap it all. And so, the, but one idea is that the more sin, the more serious the sin, and the more number of people that are sinning, the, the more pollution takes place, the more uh, pollution gets to the point where God can't even enter into the space. Um, and so there's just a ton going on that I would love to have time to get into, but um, we're just going to focus on the most important part, which is the, the blood of the animal, which I bet you were like, sweet, man, I hope Anthony, after Thanksgiving, talks about blood a whole lot. Um, and if you're queasy at just the word blood, you brace yourself, because we're going to talk about it a lot, all right? Um, I've tried to work this in several times throughout this series, this simple idea of how blood covers up sin or atones for sin. Um, you can even kind of get the meaning of atonement or the purpose of atonement in our English word atonement. If you split it up, you kind of get at one mint. Like the purpose of atonement is that God can cleanse us so that we can be at one with him. Atonement is about dealing with the sin and the mess that it's made so that God can be with, with us and we can be with him. And it was the life, particularly, of the animal or the person. It was the life in the blood that made the blood so special, that made it able to atone for the sinfulness of, of Israel and everyone else. Um, and there's actually two sides to atonement that are taking place simultaneously. It's like a candy cane, two colors woven together all the way through. It's like these two aspects that are both happening at the same time, both incredibly equally important. Uh, the first aspect is a ransom from death. Covers up and makes it possible um, the death that we deserved. In Romans chapter three or chapter 6, verse 23, very famous part of a verse says, for the wages of sin is death. People have uh, quoted that a, lot, a long, long, long time. Uh, but that's kind of the thing. You sin, and your paycheck for sin is death. That's what you earn with your disobedience to God. Sin against God is so serious because you are breaking the desired order with which he created the world to work. He meant it to be love and peace and joy, and we're invading it with selfishness and greed and hatred and anger and malice. We're, we're corrupting his world. Um, I once heard someone call it cosmic treason. That, that we are trying at the very foundation, trying to unravel what makes 
his world so special. We're rebelling against God, attempting to steal away his authority, saying, we're not going to run this your way. This is our world now. We're in charge here. Uh, we're like pirates commandeering creation to do what we want to do with it. And the ultimate crime, the ultimate insult is this cosmic treason, and it's a crime deserving of death. And a life must be given to pay the debt that we owe God. And there is this part where a crime has been committed that warrants the death penalty. And God, because he's so kind and so gracious, out of his extreme compassion for us, he makes it possible for something else to die in our place. And so he takes these ancient Israelites and he gives them the system of offerings that's so gross. And if we would have been there watching it, hearing it, smelling it, it would have turned our stomach. But it was really a gift for them that they could bring an animal and allow an animal to die in the place of the people that really truly deserved death. And he allowed an animal to serve as a representative and to die in the place of the people. That's why when they, anybody brought one of these offerings, one of these animals, they would put their hand on it as a symbolic way of saying, this animal stands in my place. The second part of atonement is the idea of washing and purifying what has been corrupted by sin. Uh, because our sin, again, it defiles not just us, but the very space we inhabit. And so in order for God to come into our space, we have to be cleansed, and all of that defilement needs to be washed away. And since the life of the animal was in the blood, they would take the blood, which was life, and use it to wash over the things that had been corrupted by death. That's not how we think of blood. Like, I mean, again, the fact that we get queasy queasy and woozy talking about it, um, that shows that we have a very negative view of blood. We have a kind of, ooh, this is very gross and serious and dirty. In fact, some of you, you've had kids who, you know, got a skin knee and blood all over their clothes, and and all you saw was a problem. Like, this isn't a, you don't think life. You think, ugh, my kid was rough and tumble, now i got to bust out the peroxide and clean, ugh, you know. You, we don't think about blood this way. But to them, they understood blood was life. And if we've brought death into the world, the way we wash away that death is with the life of the animal. And so they would take the blood and they would cover things with it, sprinkle it on things, rub it on things in order to cleanse them from the death, to, to purify the defilement so that God could enter the space and be with people. Um, and much like how bigger messes require more heavy-duty cleaning solutions, like, you know, we have, uh, we joke that since our kids were born, like, both our couch and the carpet in, that, in the living room are just obliterated. And so we go through sometimes, and we'll, you know, we clean up spots as they happen, you know, we get a little scrubby brush. Um, a few years ago, I got brush attachments for my power drill, whole new level, um, and about every, like, Six months, I get on Amazon, and I look at those, like, uh, the thing, the, like, little contraptions. There's, like, a Bissell, and it's, you can suck this. So, you not only can you scrub the carpet, but then you can, like, like suck all the junk back out. Uh, so, I look at that stuff, because it's, like, the bigger the mess, the more serious you have to be with the cleaning, right? Um, well, this offering had some very um, specific instructions, and the more serious sins required bigger offerings. The more serious levels of sin or the more amount of sin, people would have to bring a bull. That was the biggest, most costly, expensive offering that could be brought in the system. But also, um, they would have to, it would change where they had to take the blood. It would change what had to be cleaned with the blood because it was almost, there were more sin, it seeped deeper into God's space. Um, 
I don't know how many of you have ever had a basement flood before. I'm, I'm sorry, Mitchells. I hope you don't bring... I'm not, they just had this happen not terribly long ago. I don't want to send you into PTSD flashbacks twice. Oh, twice. Okay. Uh, and I don't even really have a ton of right to talk about it because uh, my parents' basement has always flooded since I was a kid, but it's not like a living basement. Um, the lady who lived there before us in the house before us told my mom, the only thing this basement is good for is a murder. Uh, it's like, it's just, a, it's a glorified uh, crawl space that you can walk around in, essentially. Um, and anytime a sump pump bit the dust and it sprinkled a little bit, that thing started to flood. And sometimes um, it would flood a little, you know, you get a couple inches and you're like, ah, this is a pain. But there was a couple of times when we get those torrential downpours and it would like be waist deep in this crawl space basement of ours. It would be really quite serious. And we would always open up the door. We had like a latch door on the floor and we'd open it up and we'd just like watch it. Like, okay, how far is this going to go? And you'd watch as it rained and as it filled up more and more and flooded more and more, you'd see it like make its way up one step, you know, and then the next step. And it would just get closer and closer to the space that we were living in. And I remember those few times when that sump pump died and my dad would have to get down in there. And um, those were some of those most traumatizing times of a young man's life where he's trying to hold the flashlight for his dad. Um, and there's nothing. There's no, I don't know what the way to do it right is. I never did it right. Did anybody else ever nail it? Because I didn't. Um, but um, that idea that the more water, you know, floods into the basement, the closer it was like seeping into our living space. That's kind of the idea of sin in the tabernacle. The more sin, the, cl- the deeper it made its way into this tabernacle. Um, the very center of the tabernacle was a room called the Holy of Holies. And it was surrounded and cut off with a curtain. It held the Ark of the Covenant, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and uh, the first one. Um, that held the, and that was, that was seen as like the place where God inhabited. That was God's room, if you will. And then the rest of the tent, the more outside area of the more... The, the inside part of the tabernacle that was outside of that particular room was called the holy place. And so it was kind of like this target, you know, with these rings. Um, and the closer uh, you got to the middle, the closer you got to God. And so um, with other offerings that we've looked at so far, when there was, they'd take the blood of the animal and they'd throw it on an altar that was outside of the tent altogether. It was in like the courtyard of the tent out front. But what we see with this offering is that sin gets so serious that it penetrates the tabernacle and the blood must be taken in to wash the space away so that God could come in. The more serious the mess, the more drastic the the solution for cleaning it. And so let's keep reading in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3. So it says, If that person who sins is the anointed priest or the high priest the guy who's the representative of the entire nation. So it was a big deal if he messed up. If he sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull, the biggest offering you could bring, from the herd, uh, had to be without blemish to the Lord, and he had to bring it for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull. Again, this bull is now my representative. He's going to do what I can't do. He's going to stand in my place. And he would kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. That's the first time we've seen blood actually being taken into the tent throughout this whole series. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood 
and sprinkle parts of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary, or the curtain, the veil, the, the, the fabric that separated that room, the Holy of Holies, where God was. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. This is a different altar. Um, the altar on the outside was the burnt offering altar. This was an altar uh, called the altar of incense that was burning something all the time. And so he's still in the tabernacle. This, this altar was right outside that veil, that curtain. And he would put blood on that as well, uh, the incense that is before uh, the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. So he goes outside, pours some outside at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he sprinkles the blood, no longer outside, but inside the defilement of the people could seep inside the tent, the very space where God was supposed to be. And so this inner room, it needed to be cleansed. The sin had come right up to the door. It, it came right up to the door of God's home. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, like, when it's, uh, again, I've never experienced this. My parents' house was up on a big hill, so we never had flooding like this. But I've seen those videos where hurricanes will go by and people will have flooding. And they like their front door will be a glass door, and you'll see the water up the door. And for some reason, it's just like barely trickling in. Like, that's kind of the idea. Like, the water got to the door. The sin got to the door of the Holy of Holies. And the priest had to sprinkle blood on it seven times. And then even once a year, the priest would do the same ritual, only he would have to go in and put blood on the ark itself. Um, because again, the accumulation of sins threatened to mess up the whole system where God came to be with his people. And so you might think, okay, great. So what? We don't have a tabernacle. We're not killing bulls all the time and shooting their blood everywhere with our fingertips like a kid trying to flick water on their sibling. We don't do this kind of stuff. So what does this even matter? Well, the reason is this ancient stuff that happened thousands of years ago that in many ways doesn't have any bearing on how we live our life today. The reason why it matters is because if you pay attention, it kind of starts to reveal to you why Jesus had to come and die. Because the world and the people in it have been defiled. We have made this world, we have made our presence unfit for God to come and be with us. We are a people that he loved so much and we've rebelled against him. And so God, he gave the ancient Israelites a temporary system to help with this. A temporary system to deal with the evil and the defilement. And to hopefully show them through this repeated offering how costly and nasty sin is. Hopefully they would understand just sin spreads and it's gross and it hurts you and it hurts others and it keeps God away from you, the source of life away from you. But ultimately God knew the animal sacrifices didn't cut it and that humanity needed something better. The book of Hebrews does a great job of kind of helping us to understand this. Hebrews chapter 9. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not one that was made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, <clears throat> excuse me, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it basically points out two things, that Jesus came both our high priest and our purification offering. He was both the one offering the offering and he was the offering itself. Not an animal, but a truly sinless, blameless life. A true representative, a picture of what you and I should have been. The life that was perfectly what we should have lived. And he took the offering, it says, not just into a human-made tent, but he went into the very presence of God, an eternal tabernacle, the very heavenly realms to be actually with God. And he became our eternal representative before the Father, washing us clean and purifying us with his blood, forever cleansing us, forever cleansing the world so that we can have a direct line with our heavenly Father. That's why Jesus died. In Matthew chapter 27, it even, we even get an extra little hint at this idea of being in the presence of God and how we need to draw, how, how God was in that holy place and people used to have to come near to him, but that Jesus did something better. In Matthew chapter 27, this is when Jesus hung on the cross, it says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, meaning he died on the cross. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom because the cleansing that Jesus offered, the sacrifice of himself, was so ultimate, was so supreme that there didn't even need to be a separation between God and man through that curtain. There didn't need to be that place where God was on one side of the fabric and we had to stay on the other. But the veil ripped in two to show that there was no longer no separation between God and his people. That because of Jesus and when we put our faith in him, we can truly come and be one with our heavenly father. This is why you can pray. And why I can pray, and we don't have to go to some priestly representative who's more pure than we are, who's done more rituals than we have to clean himself up <clears throat> so that he can talk to God. This is why we can go to God directly. The curtain being torn in two, Jesus' death purifies all who put faith in him so that we no longer need that, that protection from God. Because if you took sin into the presence of God, that was a very, very dangerous position to be in. So... All that to be said, you might never flip to the book of Leviticus, open those first few chapters, and just love reading about these offerings. You might never love thinking about the sights and the smells and the sounds that took place as people actually brought these offerings, and that's okay. But I hope that as we do this series, you will at least start to appreciate why we need to look at them occasionally, what they teach about and the foreshadowing they give us of our amazing Savior, Jesus. And even if you can't get on board with the rituals that required blood to be thrown here and there, I hope at least as you hear about this stuff, you'll grow to be more thankful um, and more in awe of how Jesus came to die in our place to offer a, himself as a perfect sacrifice so that you could be with the God that wants to be with you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus, I pray that we would learn about just how amazing and good and, and ultimate his sacrifice was as we watch these, uh, the lives of these Israelites who brought these offerings over and over again over the course of their lives, who, if they live far away from the temple, would have to make a journey of days to come and break an offering when they've sinned. 
I pray that we would understand the seriousness of which you view sin and understand that, like, how we stand before you in our sin, lost and um, cut off from you, the source of life stuck in our death, uh, the death we've brought on ourselves through sin and corruption, and that we would understand just even more the beauty of what Jesus did for us, that you, out of your great love for us, gave your son to stand in our place as a once-for-all perfect offering, so that not only do we not have to bring animal sacrifices to stand in our place, but we get to come directly in contact with you and pray directly to you and experience your love firsthand. We get to experience the joy of feeling your spirit work inside of us and guide us through life. We get to be at one with you, Father, in ways that uh, those ancient Israelites could only dream of. And that happens through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. What they offered then, they could only look, it only caused them to look forward to a better day that we now live in. And so we thank you for the purifying sacrifice of Christ that not only purifies us, but the very creation in which we live so that we can come to you. I pray that as we move through life, rather than spreading our sin and our defilement, we would spread life and redemption and peace and joy everywhere we go so that the world might know you and see their deep need for Jesus and the love that you have for them. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.